Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Tim Shipman is on deadline. The Sunday Times chief political commentator has a book to finish. His first, All Out War, was published in late 2016 and became an instant bestseller. It was a breathless, minute-by-minute reportage of the build-up to the EU referendum. It takes you inside every room, every conversation, every twist and turn of a pivotal moment in British political history. It remains the best book on Brexit ever written. In fact, you've probably already read it. The follow-up, Fallout, A Year of Political Mayhem, gave us more of the same. The first 12 months of Theresa May's chaotic premiership played out hilariously, painfully, blow by blow on every page. Reading these books made you feel like everyone in Westminster must have talked to Tim Shipman. Maybe everyone did. Now, six and a half years later, the third, and somewhat delayed, book in this Brexit-focused trilogy is at last upon us. Published this April and titled simply, and for Downing Street rather ominously, Out. It charts everything that has happened since the last tome, from the Brexit wars of 2018, to Theresa May's downfall and the rise of Boris Johnson, through those chaotic first months of Dominic Cummings, prorogation and snap elections, a Brexit deal or three, Covid, Partygate, Johnson's own downfall, 49 days of Liz Truss, and finally the ups and downs of Rishi Sunak. It's exhausting just listing it all. Shipman has been writing this book for years, alongside his celebrated weekly Sunday Times long read articles, which give us an unparalleled real time window into the inner workings of the current government. Westminster devours these weekly columns as breathlessly as it does Shipman's books, each snippet of colour about how government decisions are taken, being shared as eagerly in SW1 WhatsApp groups as each hard news story is followed up by the entire lobby the following day. I've known Tim for a long time. He's only a few years older than me, but he's been in the lobby way longer, like more than two decades. In fact, covering Blair and Brown and Cameron and all that's followed since. That might be why he agreed to meet me in this week of all weeks, with his book deadline now just days away, and with a vast amount of work still to be done. Well, that, and the promise of some good rare steak, and a half-decent bottle of claret. As you know, I don't drink red wine, he replied via WhatsApp when I made my pitch. I breathe it. Over a couple of hours or more, we worked our way through so many topics, but chief among them, the art of long-form political writing. I can smuggle a bunch of useful information about the real debate. And the art of keeping your sources on side. The serious case I make to my contacts is, look, you are trying to tell stories to the country. I can help you tell those stories. We talked about the chaos, obviously, of the Brexit years. Now, you can argue whether the Brexit referendum revealed divisions that were there or created them. What it's like to interview Donald Trump in the Oval Office. There's a little red button on the desk. In comes a flunky with a silver tray with Diet Cokes on it. And, of course, the art 
of the political lunch. Well, I mean, you say you don't know how to do a lunch. You stuffed a load of wine down me the second I sat down, so you seem to know what you're doing. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm inviting you to a boozy lunch with Tim Shipman of the Sunday Times and trying not to get him too drunk before his deadline. I'm sitting at the bar, drinking a glass of gin, and Tim Shipman is running late. I'm not going to be there until quarter past, he messages. Sorry. And then, a moment later, fell asleep over the keyboard. Panic shower. On way. Then he rings me. Then he rings off. And now I have arse dialed, he messages. Journalists on deadline, man. I can only sympathise. <laughs> Tim's a tall guy, late 40s, bespectacled, jovial, funny, brimming with gossip and waspish asides. He looks suitably exhausted and not a little screen frazzled. But with a glass of wine in his hand, he soon warms up. We talk for two and a half hours with mics on the table. Though we've edited this conversation down a fair bit for the podcast, partly for brevity and partly at the request of my lawyers. And just a quick trigger warning, as you've probably seen from various leaked WhatsApp messages over the past couple of years, Westminster can be quite a sweary place. And this lunch is no exception. Consider yourselves warned. Tell us how it's been going this week. Are you actually right on deadline as as billed? Well, it depends what you mean by right on deadline. <coughs> uh, the amount of work that Lean's doing is retreating into the distance, whereas the deadline is approaching fast, like the ground coming up at you and you're sort of flailing your arms around. How many words are written on the page? There's too many words on the page at the moment. That's um, better than not enough. Uh, at this stage, <laughs> no. it's a process of trying to add stuff whilst also trying to cut a considerable amount. So um, I liken this to the, uh, the creation of a good sauce. It's called a reduction. Yes. So you're sort of heating it and simmering it and adding a few more vegetables here and there. Any particular vegetables in Westminster being crowbarred in at a late stage? Well, I'm currently doing the Johnson Premiership in some detail. So um, Full of vegetables. Uh, your words, not mine. Um, <laughs> full of quite a lot of red meat as well, though. Actually, to be uh, to be fair to them, this this book spans the whole period from the end of your last book, yeah, so right up to now. Pretty much right up to now. I mean, uh, the, the the place where this book is going to end has changed about six times. It was originally going to end after Theresa May departed, and then after Brexit was done, Covid book, got in the way. Well, there's yeah, Covid got in the way. Having two children got in the way. Um, so I wrote two six hundred page books in three to four months each and this has now taken six years the, the first two books were obviously wildly popular and covered relatively short periods of time I guess they were both sort of like a year each and this one now covers six to seven years um, and is, that, mean, is that harder? yes um, it's been it's, I mean they liken it to doing a marathon but sprinting the whole way um, essentially and there's obviously a challenge for how much you zoom in and how much detail you do along the way, but people mostly read me because they like the details. So the challenge has been to um, make sure this is comprehensive and cover uh, all the exciting and important stuff that happened whilst keeping a sort of theme and a, a general kind of overview of what was going on. So, we, you know, um, both wood and trees are both represented. It's a head-spinningly chaotic period of British government the like of which we haven't seen for a very well, long I don't time. Think we've seen it since the Second World War. It, it feels like you sort of think that Brexit is still the theme that runs through it all. It strikes me. Is that is that fair? Brexit isn't something we talk about as much anymore as we obviously did a few years ago, but it feels like that's the driver for all this. Well, I think it's a driver. It's, it's partly a driver in policy terms because it's never quite gone away. But I think it's more than that. I think it's a cult kind of culture that it created. Now, you can argue whether the Brexit referendum revealed divisions that were there or created them. I think you can make the case that it did both. Um, and the Tory party has always, in the words of William Hague, been um, a, a monarchy modified by regicide. But boy, did the depth of feeling and the angst that Brexit created sort of um, take that to the max. And I don't think the Conservative Party's ever quite got out of the habit since. And I think, you know, obviously Brexit is not the cause or... Uh, 
of, of all of this stuff, but I think it frames the period we've been through and it created a kind of a level of heat. Um, I'm slightly loath to say toxicity because I think that's always been there and um, uh, I think that becomes a bit loaded. Um, but, yeah, this is these are the Brexit years, whether or not they were always about Brexit. A lot of it was about Boris Johnson. But, Boris, but Brexit wouldn't have happened without Boris Johnson. You know, he is the central character in this whole period and Dominic Cummings is not far behind him. Um, and a lot of what occurred during that period was is partly their sort of biography and their story, so it'd be wrong not to cover it. A waiter appears, right on cue, with menus and a tray of breads and some really fancy-looking butter. He tops up our wine glasses and we carry on. I want to talk about the process of this. I'm a news reporter, really, by trade. You know, I wrote for The Mirror for years doing political journalism. I wrote Playbook, as you know, which is a different kind of style. But what you do is a very different sort of political journalism. Both the books you write, but also the long reads in the Sunday Times every weekend. How different was it for you to get into doing that? I was in the Sunday lobby before I did two spells at the Daily Mail. And when I was there the first time, Joe Murphy, who was then the political editor of the Sunday Telegraph, and um, Gabby Hinsliff, who was the number two on The Observer, quite often did long reads. Um, good insidery accounts. I remember one Joe wrote all about um, uh, Tory MPs sidling up to each other at the bar and trying to con information out of each other during a leadership contest, and I remember really enjoying that. So when I got the Sunday Times gig in 2014, I sort of thought this had all fallen into disrepair. No one was really doing it, and I wanted to make that a thing. And, you know, it was a sort of homage to those guys. Um, the short answer is there's a formula, like there is for writing a news story. With a news story, you write the most interesting thing, and then the second most interesting thing, then you explain why it's important, and then you explain how it came about. Um, with a big read, whether this was a formula that everybody's used, it's the one I kind of worked out, um, you know, not to put too much sunshine on magic, but you want anecdotes, what I call nuggets. And I regard any good quote or any good sort of factual scene with, a, with some colour in it, as we say, as a nugget. And you want a certain number of nuggets and you need to be able to string them together in an interesting way. And you want to start with something that's A, arresting and B, uh, hopefully new, that gets you into the revelations early. Because I've got enough news reporting in me that I want still to make people go, oh, we didn't know that. And occasionally, you know, the top end of a of a read can be quite newsworthy. Um, we did that on December the 31st when we had all the details about um, uh, how Cummings had been going to have secret meetings with Rishi Sunak. That directly contradicted what Number 10 had been telling everybody for a year or more. Um, so that was good. So I wanted to start with that. And then you get into a kind of narrative where you want to focus on you know, what's interesting? What would keep me reading? You know, I mean, what I, what I can hopefully say to my contacts who want to uh, uh, divest themselves of information is that with one of mine, people do gender read to the end. And if you give me something to slip into paragraph 18, it will enter the, the bloodstream in Westminster just the same as it would if you put it at the, as an intro in the Sunday Telegraph or the Observer. And that, uh, is, that is true. And, and you see people screenshotting little paragraphs of your long reads. Yeah, and, and that's the most fun books. I have on a Saturday night. Sharing is when, on social media. And quite often what will happen is that someone in one of these sort of aggregator sites will seize on something which I didn't think was particularly new. Like I named the election date as being November the 14th. Boom, everyone suddenly got very excited about that. I kind of thought I'd put that in print before. Uh, maybe I hadn't. Do you, do you actively then seek out these little moments, the little, you know, in-the-room moments? Rishi Sunak slammed down his pen and knocked over a water glass. Or Boris Johnson got... Well, Dom Cummings got humped by Boris Johnson's dog. Or, you know, those kind... You, you're looking for those all week, are you? Yeah, um, bluntly. But yes, you want bits of colour to sort of liven things up, but also to explain. And, the, you know, the serious case I make to, to my contacts in the main parties is, look, you are trying to tell stories to the country. I can help you tell those stories. But anyone who writes a novel, the first, you know, how-to book they pick up will say that you show, don't tell. You don't tell the reader that someone is aggressive or intelligent. You show them being it. And the same applies to politics. You know, if I get a briefing from someone who says, oh, well, the Prime Minister was very resolute this week. It's a very difficult week for him. And, you know, and he said, well, that's great. I can write that down. But why don't you show me him being resolute? And then the reader is far more likely to take away what you want them to take away if you give me that kind of information. 
And these, these people are politicians or they're advisors mostly? Yeah, sometimes to both. I mean, you would start mostly talking to the advisors, um, particularly when you're dealing with the prime minister or the leader of the opposition. But there are definitely shadow ministers and certainly members of the cabinet where they are better at it than their advisors. Damien McBride is the best of all time at it. I mean, he would virtually write your piece for you. Um, He's the, the former Gordon Brown advisor who's now a shadow... Well, he's now with Emily Thornberry, advisor, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. But sort of, I think, has a wider role behind the scenes where, given that he's been around a bit, a lot of people pick his brain about how to do this stuff well. And he obviously overstepped the mark and damaged his reputation and all the rest of it. But I've met very few people in politics who get it as well as Damien. You, you make it sound very transactional. I guess it is, basically, is it? They've well, got everything's some... transactional, isn't it? All, poli- all political journalism's transactional. If you're a political editor, you want splashes, you want news stories to stick on the front that keep your editor employing you, and uh, each party has to decide where they're going to get their biggest bang for their buck, and do we do it with that paper or that paper or that journalist or that journalist? What, one caveat must be that, you know, you can't trust these people as far as you can throw them, and while this advisor is telling you how tough Liz Truss was, in fact, it was nothing like that. Well, look, there's always ways and means of uh, checking stuff out. Um, you have to take some of it on trust, but if you take, if people have a habit of telling you things that turn out to be porky pies, you quite quickly stop taking their phone calls. When you've been doing uh, boring old hack talk now, but when you've been doing this as long as I have, all you've got really is your reputation. And if you start writing nonsense, then that, you know, it takes 20 years to get it and it takes 10 minutes to lose it. So you've got to be quite careful um, and, you know, do your best to check things out. Should we order some food? Hello. We both know what we want. Burrata, followed by a shared plate of Brazilian-style picanha steak. How would you like the picanha to be cooked? Pretty rare, I guess. Definitely medium rare. Medium rare. Medium rare. And two burratas You do sometimes get something and you think, this is too good to be true. Has that happened to you? Yeah, sometimes. But sometimes they're the most glorious days of the lot. I remember phoning... um, the then Director of Communications for Boris Johnson to uh, say... There were a few of those, weren't there? There were, so we'll leave it for people to work (laughs) out for themselves who this is. But um, I'd done the first sort of big read on Boris and Rishi falling out when Rishi was Chancellor and Boris was Prime Minister. And a few weeks later, someone passed me a a letter that Rishi had written about lockdown travelling and basically had got really aggressive with Boris, saying, we, you know, we've got to lift these restrictions. The first Boris Johnson saw of that letter was when it was on the front of the Sunday Times. Someone had forgotten to put it in his ministerial box. Uh, he went absolutely ballistic. And the following Tuesday, uh, in the morning meeting, he got very carried away in front of about 15 witnesses, um, ranting and raving about how Rishi Sunak would make a very good health secretary and shouldn't he move him. Now, I thought this would come out straight away because most stuff was leaking almost immediately then. And the fact that it didn't then made me suspicious when I was told... I think I was told about it the following day and it held all the way through to Saturday morning. And I'm thinking, well, OK, you're quids in here, shippers. Um, but it may all just go terribly wrong. So I phoned up the Director of Communications and said, I hear, you know, Boris uh, threatened to sack, you know, demote Rishi um, in the week. And there was this agonising pause where I thought, he's going to lie, he's going to lie, I know he's going to lie, am I going to run it anyway, he's going to lie, and he just went, fucking hell, how did you find that out? <laughs> and at, at that point, point you're dancing I'm, li- oh, I'm literally punching the air, I'm, I'm air, da- you know, I'm dancing at my desk. Story nailed. Let me, let me put a counterpoint to you on all of this, with the caveat, your books are extremely well read, they've obviously bestseller list, topping the bestseller list, the Sunday Times reads, people pour over them in Westminster, as I say, they screenshot them, they tweet them out, they sit there at half past six, as it now often is, or six o'clock on a Saturday evening, waiting for them to drop, pouring over the detail. Some people would say that this kind of journalism is like poor political journalism, that like what matters is covering the issues and the policies and holding people to account. What do you say to that? Like what, what, what's, what's, the, what's the sort of supporting argument for writing about politics as a sort of court about the characters and, and, and the way that you do? I think there's several things. I think you can't understand how policy gets made or things happen unless you understand the personal dynamics of the people doing it. So much of it is about human beings. It's quite a small group of people and the, the dynamics between them matter. People are trying to do things 
because they believe in them for ideological reasons, so it's useful to understand where they're coming from, or they want to boost their own career, or they want to stop something because they think it's a stupid idea. Doing a long read is a way of trying to delve into the detail and actually not have to put a screaming banner headline on something. You know, if I can spend 12, 15 paragraphs explaining what the actual debate on immigration inside the government is, rather than just go, oh, they're going to do X, Y, or Z, and it's all an outrage, or it's all brilliant. I think there's there's some worth in that. But I think if you underestimate the the degree to which personal ambition, animosities, um, interactions drive a lot of what happens in Westminster. I think you're missing a large part of the story. Um, And then there's no need for this to be boring. Boring isn't good just for the sake of it. Um, Politics is really important. There's a reason I've spent 20-odd years of my life writing about it, when most people I know tune in occasionally um, to the six o'clock news and are very glad to have politics out of their lives for large portions of each parliament. It's really important that people pay attention to it and that they understand it. Um, And if I can smuggle a bunch of useful information about what's the real debate about what works and what doesn't on immigration. If that involves someone calling somebody else a wanker just to keep people reading, then I'm more than happy to pay that price. Some of these characters that you're writing about, probably most of these characters that you're writing about, you know, you mentioned Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson as the big characters through the, all three books, really. You know, you know these people very well, right? You know, you've been a, one of the most senior political journalists in the country, you've been around for a long time, you know a lot of these people very well. Do you get squeamish writing about them sometimes? Do you find it hard to put down on page and print out this very personal anecdotes sometimes about some of these people that they're probably the last thing on earth they want to see in print? I mean, it can be. I mean, you know, you do get to know people quite well, but you only ever see one side of them. Um, you know, you, I've seen Dominic Cummings once with his son, for example, who happened to be in Downing Street when I went in to see him once. And that was a whole different Dominic Cummings. Um, I've seen the briefest glimpse of that, of the sort of doting father, as opposed to the utterly uncompromising political operator. Um, So you shouldn't kid yourself that you know these people that well. I can count on the fingers of a hand that has been in a threshing machine the number of homes of politicians that I've been in, literally, you know, two or three at most. What I would say is the grown-ups understand what the world is and if you have to write rude things about them sometimes they kind of get that now some people don't and have a hissy fit and you never speak to them again um you know there's still one tory mp who is upset with something i did at the daily mail a decade ago he he won't take my calls and i don't even really know why he was upset about it at the time um most people at the top of politics know that you know people like us exist and I think it was Enoch Powell said politicians complain about the media is like sailors complaining about the sea it's kind of this difficult symbiotic relationship and all you can do is have your own kind of uh, morality about what you're prepared to do and what you're not prepared to do and what compromises you're prepared to make if you're outside Westminster though there's a sort of vague idea sometimes these stories come out and people say oh everyone in Westminster knew about that for ages and it's true that we did oh there are all sorts of things we everybody knows um there's a lot of them that we have no idea whether they're true or not yes I know all sorts of things about the exotic sex life of uh, all sorts of senior politicians <laughs> I've been told it on huge authority by members of the cabinet by aides by you know um people who say they've had a conversation with a prime minister who told them something about what he did with somebody else and who knows? I mean, what what people know to be true and what is true are two very different things. I, I, I looked you up on Wikipedia on the train, the usual research technique of a harried journalist on the way to an interview, um, and it said you joined the lobby in 2005. Is that right? Or is that completely wrong? That's completely wrong. Uh, no, I started in the lobby in 2001, oh, just, right. be- just before the 01 election. So... Wow. Yeah, I'm a proper lifer. Apart from two years in the States doing Obama and McCain and Hillary Clinton, um, I've been here ever since. Um, You've seen it change quite a lot then, presumably, or not at all? Well, sort of both, isn't it? Um, It's Mm. changed a lot in the sense that it used to be a very hierarchical place. I was 24 when I started um, on a national. I was the youngest person in the the daily lobby on a national. 
pretty much one of the oldest <laughs> now. You had to work a long time to get, you know, you'd start writing stories about the Liberal Democrats and select committees and then you'd work your way up and you'd gradually get more important and interesting stuff to handle. And it took quite a long time. Um, these days, it's a much more democratic, meritocratic place because, frankly, if you've got a good story, you stick it somewhere online and then you tweet or Instagram it to death and everybody knows it's there um, and you can make a reputation much quicker these days than you used to be able to. That said the grinding toil of kind of working out how the world works and picking it up slowly I don't think did me any harm um, I didn't become a political editor at the Sunday Times until I was sort of 38, 39 um, and by then I kind of knew everybody and I was ready for it I was lucky, the reason I'm writing these books is because when it all really kicked off and it kind of kicked off pretty much the moment I made it to the Sunday Times. Um, I'd been there three or four months when we had the YouGov poll that said Scotland was going to vote for independence. And from, frankly, that moment onwards, it's been bonkers. I, I would and pinpoint I, exactly that moment. I remember being at the seaside on a weekend, picking up the Sunday Times, your story, looking at that and going, oh shit, and my editor at the Mirror was on the phone within about an hour saying, you need to go to Scotland immediately, and I yeah. went the next day. Well, and it wasn't just you, that most of Westminster decamped there <laughs> in a sort true. of panic. Um, and then the fact that they managed to sort of turn that around, then shape Cameron's thinking about a referendum, you know, on the EU, um, we had all, you know, and then really, you know, 2015 was a slightly surprising election result. But, 2016 but, 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 was but triggered by the SNP's rise that totally. came on the back of the, yep. the, the, the Scottish referendum. Yeah, that's where the Tory majority came from. Right? And the fact that Cameron, you know, slightly complacently assumed he was going to win was partly a result of having won in Scotland. Um, and yeah, I mean, 2016 was obviously crazy. 2017 was a very you know odd election result. 2018 was total chaos from beginning to end. 2019 is probably the most ridiculous year of politics with six months of May failing to get her vote through and six months of Boris uh, challenging the constitution in order to achieve that, that I think we'll ever see. Um, and then we had COVID. I mean, 2022 Tw- gives 2022, 2019 a good they, run for They are the two, the two peaks, yeah, the year of three prime ministers. And yeah, it feels like we have not returned to the the level of kind of normality that I spent my foot you know you, you say you've been around you start you know the first seven years of my life in the lobby were Tony Blair Gordon Brown why do they hate each other the starters have arrived should we uh, should we eat this fabulous looking burrata that's just big arrived? white blobs of creamy Italian cheese and we get stuck in I figure with 20 odd years of lobby experience under his belt Tim Shipman must have a decent anecdote or two to share. Have you got a favourite moment or two? The real jaw-dropping, I can't believe this is happening, Sam Coates waggling his fingers at the camera, eyes wide, when you just can't believe British politics? Well, the the moment when Boris Johnson stood down and Sam Coates emerged um, was uh, one of them, but I think the more telling moment was the one that had happened, was it the day before? Um, we were all standing in Rusi, um, the Royal United Services Institute on Whitehall, in their library upstairs, waiting for Theresa May. A bit of idle speculation about, you know, was all well in the Johnson camp. And, blah, and then suddenly someone just went, look at your email. And there was an email from Michael Gove announcing that he'd had enough of Boris Johnson and he was going to run himself. And I think in terms of jaw-dropping moments, that was probably number one. And I think that, in a sense shaped again pretty well everything that followed that was know. an all time knifing like one you know a hundred years they yeah, should still be bringing of, that one a up a lot of what Michael Gove did subsequently was shaped by the fact that he'd done that and that he didn't want to do it again so Theresa May sort of survived the Gove knife because he he desperately didn't want um, to repeat it and I have um, hopefully the accurate words that he used um, on the night when people were trying to get him to resign over the deal from Theresa May's government um, and Cummings was then summoned to stiffen his spine and tell him to quit from halfway across London and Cummings turns up at Gabe's house and sort of shouts at him for two hours and tries to get him to quit and all his special advisors wanted him to quit they all thought the deal was hopeless and would never get through and they were probably right about uh, the latter bit um, but Gove that night, you know, readers of the book will hopefully see what he said, which is, broadly speaking, um, I can't do this again. Um, and that shaped what he did there, and um, and now you hear, well, 
maybe he's getting the appetite back and Kemi Badenhoek is uh, <laughs> someone he would quite like to install as leader and who knows but the, the fact that he betrayed David Cameron and basically lost his entire social life and all his friends by doing that then he did it to Boris Johnson and lost you know uh, was then seen as just an inveterate plotter and uh, you know uh, who'd watched a bit too much Game of Thrones that really affected Michael Gove's standing and it then affected his behaviour and you know had Boris Johnson not been knifed and had Michael Gove put it upon himself to uh, uh, sort things out in the Johnson campaign, would Boris Johnson have beaten Theresa May? I think there's a lot of people who think probably when it got to the grassroots that he would have done. And then what would Brexit have looked like? You would have had a Prime Minister who probably would have been as clueless as May about what the real intricacies of Brexit were. But the huge advantage Boris Johnson has had throughout this process is that if he says it's Brexit... The people who voted for it are happy to accept that. We may not have had quite so many years of, uh, of agony, and I might have had one fewer book to write. Perish um... <laughs> thought. Coming up in part two, what's it like to interview Theresa May? So she's strong 12 times, stable nine times. And... <laughs> or Alex Salmon. He was so vainglorious and so full of himself. Or Donald Trump. Big lad, but not overly large hands. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. OK, so this is something of a confession to make. But a big part of my job for the past 12 years has been taking people out for lunch. This looks like a good choice That's anyway, doesn't it? a proper piece of meat, that is. I know, I know. The struggle is real. But lunch is actually a properly big thing in Westminster, especially for political journalists. It's better than working for a living. It always has been, mate. That's the point. I wondered if Tim Shipman had some tips. I wanted to do this... Uh, interview over lunch uh, partly because I like going for lunch but also because I'm pretty sure you like going for lunch um, well you only have to take one look at me don't you, to know that <laughs> that, that is the case I didn't say that but I would be interested to hear you talk about the politics of lunch and how to have a lunch and it's a big part of political journalism do you have a an approach to lunching I'm guessing you do quite a lot of lunching as in a professional capacity do you do you go in with a battle plan or do you just sit down have a drink have a chat see how I it used goes? to go in with it all pretty well worked out um and that was sort of in the days when I knew that there were three issues coming up that I desperately needed to get information on to try and get a page lead out of um I find these days that being a bit more free form and just kind of seeing where things go is is more use to me because a lot of that colour and nuggets we talked about, they don't often walk in with it in their heads, but sometimes it just sort of pops up. Um, After the second bottle. Well, I mean, you say you don't know how to do a lunch. You've stuffed a load of wine down me the second <laughs> I sat down, so you seem to know what you're doing. Some bits are easier than others, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, not everybody drinks these days, certainly not in the middle of the day, and it's um, that side of things is uh, more problematic than it used to be. But, um, yeah, it helps if you loosen the tongue. I mean, you should want to have a, a small talky chat to start with not least because sometimes you do pick up interesting things about a politician or their lives or what they think about something you know in a kind of more abstract way from doing that uh, before you like you know 
tell me the next three policies you're going to announce and when you you know whether you're going to let me write about them. Um, you know, I mean, there's lots of sort of conversational gambits, like you know, what, what's what are you spending most of your time on these days? And sometimes that can be a quite a surprising thing that's nothing to do with what you assumed that they would tell you. Um, and then you're suddenly aware of something that might be popping up in six weeks rather than in six days' time. Most of our focus is, is often on six, six days rather than, or six hours um, rather than six weeks. I like to get a flavour for, you know, the year ahead. What do they, what do they think of the big themes? Um, and there's a question I've stolen shamelessly from Chris Hope. Um, uh, Telegraph now, Telegraph, GB News. Now GB News, you know, Chopper, as he's known to everybody. He always asks people, what's the best story that, uh, that you know that's not been written yet? Which is a sort of pretty banal gambit, but it does work. Um, and I've stolen that one wholesale. Um, my, my, my former deputy pilot at the Mirror, James Lyons, just used to walk up to people and say, have you got any gossip? Yeah, and I would watch them look at him, and he would just stand there smiling and waiting for them to answer. And in the end, they would tell him something. <laughs> this year, clearly, everyone's got a view about the election, when it should be, what they should run on in, on both sides, what do they think of their leaders, and you, you should always give people a chance to tell you what they think of their leaders because that's normally illuminating. Um, and it depends who you're dealing with, doesn't it? You know, sometimes you can toss in a leading question and still be sat there 15 minutes later trying to remember the nine things you've been told that uh, you know will stone cold go in the paper. Other times, it's literally like a tennis match where you're constantly having to return the ball. Um, or, in the case of Theresa May, it's like a tennis match where you serve and then the ball just never comes back. <laughs> and then you have to serve again. I, I remember bumping into you some years ago when Theresa May was Prime Minister and you were on the way back from interviewing the Prime Minister in Downing Street. I think it was in Downing Street. You know, a great moment for any political journalist to be interviewing the Prime Minister and the look of agony on your face. I've just had to interview Theresa May and now I've got to come up with a story out of it. I remember thinking thoughts and prayers. She normally, her aides were normally good enough that they would send her with enough to get you through. The wolf would be... You know, baying at the door, but just... <laughs> the news of, wolf. Just, the yeah. news wolf would just about be satisfied. I did one with her during the general election in 2017, and Nick Timothy sat with us, and even he was beginning to sort of chew the inside of his cheek, wondering whether she was going to answer any questions. And in the end, the only way I could write it up, my intro was something like, we're 19 minutes into this interview, and Theresa May has said she's strong 12 times, stable nine times, and... Blah, blah, blah. And Brutal. frankly, mm. that was the best I could do. Mm. Um, but it was a wholly accurate um, account of, of the experience of interviewing him. I remember doing Alex Salmon for the Sunday Times magazine. And again, I started writing it and I assumed it would be great fun. I, don't, you know, I didn't know Alex Salmon particularly. He seemed like a raconteur and a wit and someone who'd like a drink and we'd have a good time. And I'd probably write a sort of bubbly, jolly... You know, I assumed it would be a bit like writing up an interview with Boris Johnson. But he, he was so vainglorious and so full of himself and so utterly convinced that everything he was saying was right and brilliant that as soon as I started writing it up, I realised there was no way to write a positive interview. And in the end, I just wrote what he'd said with the odd, not terribly waspish aside, but just gently sort of suggesting that, you know, he might have shut up at this point or whatever. And this, this was treated like Samizdat literature in Scotland, where he had, at that point, been sort of controlling the whole scene. It's quite a small media world, and if you wanted to get on, you probably weren't going around annoying Alex Salmon too often. And they were literally they were passing this around. I was getting messages going, we all know it's like that, but no one's had the nerve to say... And it's like, all I did was write down what the bloke said. And if he comes across as an, you know, an arrogant cock, that's not my fault. That is his fault. I think we all know why, exactly. Do you ever get nervous before an interview? Um... Yeah, I mean, these days, hopefully, you, you're you nervous about sort of the, the, the practicalities of it. How much, how much time have you got? Can you get a line out of people? Can you get them to say something interesting about the things you want them to say something in? You, if you can relax at that point, um, then it makes for a better interview. Um, hopefully, they've come with something. Get that out of the way at the top. They're then happy. Then you can explore a bit more. You save the sort of really... Uh, cutting humorous stuff to write the bit the they'll hate <laughs> yeah, um, you know and then you'd interview Boris Johnson he'd be like I know what you're doing I used to do this you've just hit me with the question at the end that you think but then he would sort of decide whether to bite on it and quite often he would the most frightened though I've been giving, doing any interview without question was interviewing Donald Trump I think I'm one of three or four Brits 
me, Tom Newton Dunn, and Michael Gove have all interviewed uh, Donald Trump. And was, was it just you and him? No, no it was, was so the, the second time. So he did, he did Gove first, then he did Newton Dunn, and then I, Tom I and I did. Was, one he, was he president at this yeah, point? Yeah, he was president. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this was in the in the Oval Office. Blimey. And it had been arranged that Tom, who was then the political editor of the Sun, and me would go and interview him. And we would basically, so we both came up with a load of questions. We did a kind of gentleman's deal that we would both get a splash out of it, regardless of whose questions elicited the answers. Um, he stole a load of stuff that Trump said about Meghan Markle because that fitted with the Sun, and I got the, the, the better political meat on Boris and Farage and May. Um, so it all worked out in the end, but we had no idea how long we'd got. We were kept waiting for about two hours in the White House, which was like the Marie Celeste, there was nobody there. You know, I've been in the White House under other presidents where it was like watching the West Wing, everybody's charging around. This was, there was nobody there. It was completely deserted. You know, Ivanka Trump would walk past occasionally on her sort of billowing cushion of air. I think the vice president walked past at one point and went sort of, you know, all right, you know, kind of grunted <laughs> at us as we sat on the sofa. Tom was trying to watch um, a European football match, which Arsenal were participating in on his phone. <laughs> And frankly, we were bored and looking at the <laughs> clock and wondering, well, our flight's going to leave at X time. Finally, we're ushered in. He's a big man. I mean, he's like, you know, the idea that he, what did he claim to be, 13 and a half stone or something recently? I mean, he's taller than I am and I'm, and he's fatter than I am and I'm very much three or four stone the wrong side of that. Um, big lad, but not overly large hands. Um, famously so, so. Famously not overly large hands. But, you know, very so, oh, yeah, great you're here, you know, all this kind of thing. So, and we're just like, can we, can is, we just sit down? Is, so, there, is there a charm and a charisma there beyond yeah, he's the got sort a presence. of bluster? He's but, got but a presence. And he's sort human? of charming because he'd been told to do the interview and he okay. wanted to do it. And it, You guys are very important. You come here, you know, we're going blah, 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 blah. And he loves Britain and, you know, all of that. And then we sit down, two of us, in front of the Resolute desk. So he's behind the desk in the Oval Office. We're sitting there. Next to us is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was then the White House Press Secretary, who clearly thought there was literally no point to him speaking to these Brits. What's the point? Sitting there with their arms folded, wondering why to bother. And then you have this really weird experience where you're desperately trying to move him on and keep him going. Can we get him to say something on six topics, eight topics, ten topics? Because... Boy, does that man answer questions. If you ask him a question, he'll give you an answer, and he knows damn well what he's doing. You know, if you ask him something about Theresa May, he knows he needs to be rude about Theresa May, and that he's going to be nice about Boris Johnson, he's going to say something about Farage. And on and on it went. After nine minutes, the lizard finger (laughs) popped out. There's a little red button on the desk, and we thought, is this it? Are the Secret Service coming in and saying, time's up, lads? SWAT team presses the button no in comes a flunky with a silver tray with diet cokes on it (laughs) it was the diet coke button now whether they told him it was the nuclear button and that was just to keep him out of trouble i have no idea um but yeah in come the diet coats we all have a diet coke and and he's sort of this is the end of his day he's emerged from the room where all the tvs are and he's just kind of, you know, shooting the shit and being Donald Trump. And we're like, yeah, but we need a line about the royals. And now we need a line about this. <laughs> 23 minutes we got. And it, on one level, felt like an hour and a half. And it was punishing and pummeling. And you're desperately trying to... You're A, thinking, what if we get stopped now? What, what can we get? What's yeah. the next question I must get in? That shouted question as you're dragged out yeah, of the door you're by thinking, a man with a gun. what... You know, what, what's he actually saying? Do we need to respond to what he's saying? Largely not, because it's quicker just to get him to pronounce and then move on. It's not like a broadcast interview. You know, a print interview <laughs> is, is a sort of quote mining exercise rather than a sort of uh, attempt to hold people uh, drastically to account because that just doesn't work on the page. And I spent the whole time while I'm trying to think of questions, trying to listen to what he's saying, staring at his hair <laughs> he is bald as a coot on top and then has what a, a swathe of hair which probably comes down past his shoulder which is wound around the top of his head and then more hairspray than you uh, could to, ever to, shake to glue it to glue it over the bald top Correct. incredible and it's like sort of it's so like sugar spun, you know, those puddings with thin sugar that's <laughs> yes. been spun, sort of orange spun sugar. It's that kind of consistency. And then, yeah, we, we, 
literally jumped straight in a cab and went to the Baltimore airport and flew straight home. And, and are, you on the ju- are you jubilant at this point? Are you like? Oh, we're absolutely like we've got what we need. We've got we've got splashes coming out of our ears. And I remember Tom turned to me in the cab and went, "I think you could probably have killed him before they got in the room." <laughs> <laughs> But that's obviously not how journalists should think. And uh, I suspect it would have been the last thing yeah. we did. But, but yeah. Could have so, changed the world. But that was a proper kind of yeah. a moment in your career to, to, to see that in action. Do, do you wish you were going back over there this year for well, the I second get, coming? I hope to get over there at some point this year. You know, people who moan here about what the choice is. Um, I saw Frank Luntz, who was over here recently, the Republican pollster, and he said... The first presidential debate will be between a man in a wheelchair and a man in handcuffs. <laughs> and however bad yes. we think things might be make, here make, at times, that sums it up reasonably well. Make, makes Theresa May v. Jeremy Corbyn 2017 look like a clash of the titans, doesn't it? Yeah. It was a fever dream, though, wasn't it, 2017? It really was. Did that you... was a big moment as well, that nothing has changed. For sheer, stubborn deranged refusal to face reality. Disastrous advice, I thought, watching that. Who has let her get on the stage and pretend that they haven't U-turned on this policy? I think they had told her that it was a U-turn, but she just could not... And it was a Chris Hope question. Good old Chopper. He was the one sort of pushing her until she finally snapped. Um, And then she did, in spectacular fashion. And again, I think that wasn't the substance of it. The substance was, you know, the dementia tax and the manifesto and all the rest of it. But I think the thing that really cost her was looking deranged about it. On on TV. On TV. And I do think these are crucial. I, I remember thinking the same. You'll remember with Partygate, there were all the stories and amazing reporting by different journalists, but it was when the the video dropped of Allegra Stratton on camera and suddenly you just felt the world change. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The public just goes, and the people see it. who passed that video to other people knew that that would be the case. Oh, there's, there's more of this in the book. I can oh, really? You, oh, the genesis of that that moment. That, I mean, that, that that because Boris Johnson was going to be prime minister for ten years until that video was passed to ITV. Oh, I look forward to reading that bit. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the lobby. You've been in the lobby for 20-odd years, pretty much. Do you feel semi-detached from it all now? In a yeah, way? I do a little yeah. bit, yeah. I mean, Be- I do too. Because of the, I'm writing, you know, things in a different way and I have a level of access which means that I don't need to uh, go to lobby very often. You know, um, occasionally it's uh, useful to tune in and, and all the rest of it. I, you know, does it help to have a group of people who are dedicated to writing about politics I personally think that means that uh, both TV and newspapers have a, a more of an understanding of what's going on than just if every, a bunch of sort of renegade reporters were sent in cold each week to dredge up what they can you know you, it's a relationships business you have to develop relationships and that doesn't just mean developing sucky up relationships with politicians it means developing relationships with irate civil servants who might leak you something damaging about those politicians it means being around uh, occasionally in the pubs and bars to hear what's what and pick up you know uh, the rumors and the gossip and all the rest of it you mentioned having two children sort of maybe slowed the book up a little bit i have a four-year-old and a two-year-old i believe you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old I mean I have definitely found my job a thousand times harder since I had kids I love having kids but like it's a a different world trying to do a job like this when you're a parent how have you coped with that the short answer is sometimes I've coped with it and sometimes I haven't um no it's difficult it um because if you really 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 throw yourself at doing lobby journalism properly then you would be out every night and you would be meeting people and there's always more information there's, to gather, there's right? literally another person to talk to all the time you could always be having another lunch you could always be out for a dinner and you have to realize that that's you know not the best approach uh, for your sanity or your life and it's not always a balance political journalists are very good at striking um, that's why a lot of the sort of particularly the daily lobby news game is a is a young person's game to a degree and then you know you become a grand old panjandrum and get shoved upstairs into writing uh, long reads or making podcasts or editing I yeah i mean i was very happy to embrace this you know i like what i'm doing and i like having more space and more depth and but also trying to sort of 
keep people entertained with politics rather than just sort of outrage them all the time or shock and amaze them all the time. Yeah, but it's it's problematic. And when you're trying to do a book on top of that, books are solitary, selfish acts, ultimately. And do you that's like difficult. that? Do you like shutting yourself away in a room and just thinking and writing? Some people thrive off offices. I love writing. And- I mean, that's what I... I'm happiest in terms of anything that resembles professional life, just coming up with the right phrase or I get, I'm still, I've been sounding like a jaded old hack for parts of this interview. If someone gives me a good nugget or someone tells me something interesting that I know is new, I am just as excited now as I was 25 years ago. I am thrilled that I know something that other people don't and that I can bring that to the world in a hopefully, you know, well-crafted way. You know, I don't get tired of seeing my name in print. The same kind of egomaniacal nonsense still exists now. You don't lose that. And I think anyone who loses that sort of desire to kind of know and perhaps to cause a bit of mischief here and there as well, that, you know... I know people in their 70s and 80s who still have that, and I hope I've still got that when I'm that age. So that's Tim Shipman, causing more than a little mischief for a few years yet to come. This uber-insidery type of political journalism and us gossiping hacks who make hay with it will never be everyone's cup of tea. I do get that. But I think Tim makes a pretty good case as to why it's actually important and why so many political junkies keep flocking to read it, article after article, book after book, week after week, year after year. Lunch is done here, and so we say our goodbyes and head off to our respective homes in south-east London. Me to my kids, and Tim to his desk, and his deadline. His new book, Out, will be out on April the 25th, and I'll be reading it, along with the rest of Westminster. And I'd say there's a fair chance that you'll be reading it too. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please follow us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice review if you've got the time. My producers this week were Artemis Irvin and James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.